My name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 17th of July. For today's podcast we return to the Gospel according to Luke and that story about Jesus and the two sisters, Mary and Martha. Our first song by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young is about the importance of sound teaching. Later songs focus on the centrality of Jesus and the need to be still in his presence. A couple of notices... The Scrabble Club meets on Tuesday afternoon at 2.30. The deacons meet on Thursday evening for their monthly meeting. Please remember them in your prayers. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 15. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbours, or speak evil of their friends, 
those who despise flagrant sinners and honour the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such people will stand firm forever. wrestling and in my doubts in my failures you won't walk out your great love will lead me through you are the peace in my troubled sea whoa you are the peace in my troubled sea in the silence you won't let go Questions your truth will hold Your great love will lead me through You are the peace in my troubled sea Whoa, You are the peace in my troubled sea My lighthouse, my lighthouse Shining in the darkness to shore, safe to shore, safe to shore, safe to shore. I won't feel what tomorrow brings, with each morning I'll rise and sing, my God's love will
we pray to the God made known to us in Jesus Christ, who taught us to care for the whole of creation, the spaces we inhabit, and places unfamiliar to us. For the whole of creation belongs to God and God alone. We pray to the God made known to us in Jesus Christ, the Christ who taught us to care for all people, regardless and because of their creed, colour, customs, lifestyle and beliefs. For everyone who has walked this earth is a child of God and God alone. We pray to the God made known to us in Jesus Christ, the Christ who taught us to care for the Church, his broken body here in the world, commissioned to love God and neighbours alike. For Christ is head of the Church, Christ and Christ alone. Forgive us for speaking when we should remain quiet, acting when it would be better to do nothing, resting when we could have been better employed. Forgive us for remaining silent when we should speak out, doing nothing when we should have acted, hurrying when we should have taken our time. Forgive us, being Martha, when we should have listened to you, our God, being Mary, when we should have listened to the needs of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village, where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. In an episode of the television programme The Simpsons, Homer Simpson, for reasons too complicated to go into here, found himself marooned on a South Sea island as a missionary. Having introduced the people to gambling and drinking, Homer realised that he'd done a bad thing. He decided that as an act of repentance and to atone for the sins of the people, they should set about restoring the church building that the previous missionaries had left unfinished. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this is a modern reenactment of the story of Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple after the exile. Well, that may be so, although personally... I have my doubts. It's what Homer said when the church was finished that interested me. When it was done, he stood back to admire his handiwork and said, Well, I may not know much about God, but I have to say, we built a pretty nice cage for him. Finding an appropriate response to God has always been a source of contention among believers. In the Old Testament, we find that one way of giving God his worth was by building a temple, using only the finest materials. Another was by making an offering of the first fruits of the harvest and the best of their livestock. 
Throughout the Christian centuries, offerings of the best work and the finest materials have been made to God. Is this what God wants? The evidence is inconclusive. In the Psalms and the prophets of the Old Testament, God mocks those who believe that he has a physical need for the sacrifices that are offered to him on the altar. In the first book of Kings, we can read the inventory of all the materials that went into the construction of the temple that was built by Solomon. But when the temple is dedicated to God, Solomon prays, I have built you a lofty house, a dwelling place for you to occupy forever. And this sounds perilously close to Homer Simpson's pretty nice cage in which to keep God. But this isn't the end of Solomon's prayer. He goes on to ask, How can God indeed dwell on earth? Heaven itself, the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So in the Old Testament we have on the one hand elaborate instructions for the construction of the temple and the way in which animals are to be sacrificed. Then on the other hand we have a passage such as this from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Your countless sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I am sated with whole offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, of sheep or he-goats when you come into my presence. Who's asked you for all of this? No more shall you tread my courts. To bring me offerings is futile. Well, what the people of Isaiah's day needed was a disciple like Peter or Thomas, someone who would say what the others were thinking, but didn't quite have the courage to say for themselves. Because when through Isaiah God said, Who's asked you for all this? I suspect that one or two of them were taken aback and wanted to say, We thought you did. It's easy to make a separation between the religion of the priests and the law of the Old Testament and that of the prophets. As dissenting Christians of the Reformation, that's us Baptists by the way, I suspect that we tend to have a closer affinity with these people who had something of the rebel about them. But the prophets weren't against sacrifice per se, but they were against hypocritical acts and against attributing to sacrifice a value which it didn't possess. The sacrifice didn't express the relationship between the worshipper and God, but it was the means by which people could come to God and the means through which they could know atonement for their sins. St. Augustine, writing just a few centuries after the time of Jesus, said this about sacrifice. True sacrifice is every act which is designed to unite us to God in holy fellowship. He was the first Christian theologian to define sacrifice as, until that point, everyone knew what sacrifice was, as it was still either a living memory in Judaism or in pagan cultures. But Augustine's definition acted as both an explanation and a commentary on Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, my friends, I implore you by God's mercy to offer your very selves to him, a living sacrifice, dedicated and fit for his acceptance, the worship offered by mind and heart. I want us to use these thoughts as the background to our passage about Mary and Martha, this classic pair of sisters who have a similar purpose, pleasing Jesus, 
but different methods. Our passage is one which makes a contrast between two disciples, and it follows on from another passage, the story of the Good Samaritan, that also makes a contrast between Jews and Samaritans, between religious people and Samaritans. It might be stretching things too far and reading too much into the way that Luke has told his story, but perhaps there is something here about a parable, the Good Samaritan, in which Jesus says a new thing about love of neighbour, and a comparison between two disciples, which says something about love of God. We're told that Jesus was being entertained in the house of two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, the position taken by one who is the disciple of a rabbi. While Luke tells us that a number of women followed Jesus, and some used their finances to support him, I think that this is the only occasion that we find Jesus teaching a woman as a rabbi would teach his disciples. While Jesus and Mary are sitting talking, Martha is busy preparing the meal. There are few things more irritating in this life than rushing around, working our fingers to the bone, keeping our noses to the grindstone, and seeing other people sitting around doing nothing. So we can understand Martha's annoyance that Jesus didn't seem to have noticed that she was getting a meal ready with no help from her sister. She didn't actually say this, but the implication seems to be, you're supposed to be someone who loves justice. Well, where's the justice in me slaving over a hot stove while Miss Butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, sits there doing nothing? Jesus didn't respond by asking Mary to go give her sister a hand. Instead, he seemed to say that Martha shouldn't worry so much and that an elaborate meal wasn't necessary, as he would be quite happy with just a sandwich. At least that was what Martha and Mary might have thought when Jesus said that Martha was fussing over many things, whereas just one thing was needed. But, as we know, Jesus wasn't talking about a simple meal with just one dish. Jesus was saying that when he came into their house, the only thing that was important was listening to him. We often allocate people into one of two groups. When I was growing up, people were either mods or rockers, Beatles or stones. In Liverpool, kids are either reds or blues, and in Manchester, city or united. Forever and a day since the story of these two sisters was told, we've thought about those who were Mary's and those who were Martha's, those who rushed around being busy and those who were content to sit and listen to Jesus. A nice creative tension for non-conformists between our natural tendency to approve of hard work and the clear approval of Jesus for the sister who sat and listened. But putting that aside, this story could divide people up, Martha's and Mary, activists and thinkers. And if this sorting out of sheep and goats is permissible, we have seen which side is the one that receives the commendation of Jesus. But is it as simple as that? I want to offer a couple of alternative scenarios. As a church, we're privileged to act as hosts to a number of Alcoholics Anonymous groups that meet on our premises every week. Any member of AA will agree with the statement, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. The members of the group are helped in maintaining their sobriety by committing themselves to meeting together regularly. Many of those who come have not touched a drop of alcohol for many years, but they know that this doesn't mean that they are cured. They know that they must take each day as it comes, 
and that all they can do is count the number of days, months or years since they last had a drink. So how much can we speak about change? Can a Martha become a Mary? If we believe that God is God and has the sovereign power to create and recreate the world and everything in it, then the answer has to be yes. But can and will are two different things. God has made us the people we are and has made each of us to be different. He's made some tall and some short, some quick and some slow, and we wouldn't imagine that there is much we could do about changing how we are. We're familiar with questionnaires of varying seriousness which attempt to assess our personality. From the ones in magazines which try to work out whether our ideal date would be Harry Styles or Daniel Craig to the more intensive searching of a Myers-Briggs test. These are all attempts to find out what sort of person we are. Some of the more serious psychological assessments might end with a session in which the subject is encouraged to accept what sort of person he or she is. So when we think about those of us God has made with a tendency towards activism and others who are more likely to do more thinking than doing, perhaps we should just accept how we are, because we can't change how we are. Robert Louis Stevenson's story of the man with a split personality gave a new expression to the English language, Jekyll and Hyde. Dr Henry Jekyll believes that there are two distinct sides to human beings, a good and an evil side and he experiments with a potion to try to separate the two sides, but only succeeds in becoming Mr Hyde. As well as giving us the expression Jekyll and Hyde, Stevenson's story has also been the basis for a considerable amount of thought about the nature of personality, and it's even been used to reflect upon the internal conflict that the Apostle Paul demonstrates in his letter to the Christians in Rome. While we might like the idea of a team, such as the Magnificent Seven, in which the different members each have a quite distinct characteristic, life tends to be a bit more complicated than that. The more complicated the psychological test, the more likely it is that it will determine a number of different personality characteristics within one individual. While we might think that a church would work well with an even proportion of Marthas and Marys, we're more likely to find if these two women can indeed be considered representative of human characteristics, that a church is made up of people, each having a varying degree of Martha-ness and Mary-ness. Now, I should make it clear that these are very technical terms, and you shouldn't try to use them at home. So, maybe, Mary and Martha, rather than being mutually exclusive types of people, are just examples of two personality types which exist to a greater or lesser extent in most of us. But still, we cannot get away from the fact that Jesus has commended Mary, the one who is quiet, over Martha, the one who is active. Has Jesus really commended one personality type over another? Has he said that one personality type is better than another? Perhaps the answer to what seems something of a puzzle might be found in the other place in the New Testament, that we find something about Mary and Martha. Jesus found out that his friend Lazarus was gravely ill when Mary and Martha, his sisters, sent Jesus a message that he should come to help. When Jesus arrived at their village, Lazarus had been dead for four days. It was Martha who rushed out to meet Jesus, while Mary remained back at the house. Martha told Jesus that Lazarus would not have died if Jesus had been there, but that even now God would do anything that Jesus asked. 
Jesus told Martha that Lazarus would rise again. And Martha told Jesus that she knew that everyone would rise again on the last day. Jesus then told Martha that he himself was the resurrection and the life, and that anyone who has faith in him shall live, even though he dies. He then asked Martha if she believed this. Well, that's a pretty unusual question for Jesus to ask. He sometimes asked if people believed in him or in his father, but here Jesus asked Martha if she believed in a statement of faith. Martha said that she did believe, and that she also believed, just like Peter, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. When Jesus arrived at the family home, Mary was waiting, and simply said the same as Martha, that had Jesus been there, Lazarus could have been saved, although she didn't add the part about it still not being too late. And that's just about all we hear of Mary and Martha in this story, except that it was Martha who, when they went to the tomb, warned Jesus that there would be quite a stench after the time that had passed since Lazarus had died. However, in the next chapter, John tells us that of the two sisters, it was Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfumed oil. So, what can we conclude from the story we read about Mary and Martha and from the small amount of other information that we have on these two sisters? Do we have to put on one side our feelings about those who sit while others work in favour of what Jesus said to Martha? Or can we reconcile our misgivings by telling ourselves we are how God made us? I believe that we can put aside any sense of disquiet because when Jesus rebuked Martha, it had less to do with what Martha was doing and more to do with what Jesus was doing. Jesus was speaking, and so Mary did the only thing that was appropriate. She was listening. In recent years, the old dichotomy between social action and evangelism has been shown to be a false one, as it has become clear that we need both to proclaim the good news and make that good news a reality. In people's lives. The same false dichotomy can be made between contemplative and active Christianity. Christianity is not about either or, but both and. The contemplative religious orders of the past were the origin of the Christian tradition of good works. The communities of brothers and sisters in their houses up and down England before Henry VIII closed so many of the orders were places where men and women cared for the sick, taught and gave shelter to those in need. I don't believe that Jesus was criticising Martha for what she was doing. Martha was criticised for what she was not doing, because Martha was not listening to Jesus. God does not call us to be contemplative Christians, but nor does God call us to be activist Christians. God calls us to be Christians. Or rather, he calls us to be disciples, men and women who listen to Jesus and follow him. He calls us to be men and women who follow in the way of Jesus, to be obedient to his way of living and to listen to him. If we insist on using the terms contemplative and activist, we might want to reflect that God wants active contemplative Christians. God wants women and men to listen to him. And when the Bible uses the word listen, it's assumed that listening involves being obedient to what is heard. Having listened to Jesus, we must do what he says, because listening without doing is no better than doing 
without having listened. No doubt we all have an idea what sort of character we are, whether we're more Mary or Martha, or vice versa. But this story isn't about personality traits. It's about what's important. And what is important is listening to God. Whether you are primarily either a doer or a thinker, Jesus says that the first thing you must be is a listener, one who listens to and follows Jesus. The greatest love a person can have for his friends is to give his life for them. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants because a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've told you everything I heard from my father. So I call you my friends. you will know my love just as I have obeyed my father's commands and know his love and my command is simply that you love each other as I have loved you I chose you and I have appointed you to go and bear much fruit the kind that will last but remember I chose you you did not choose me Those who want to serve me must follow me. Whoever follows me, I will never turn away. Still and know that I am God. 
is none beside me. When he came down to earth at Bethlehem, he came down alone. When he ran away from his parents, he ran away alone. When he was tempted in the desert, he was tempted alone. When he was brought before Pilate, he was brought alone. When he was crucified and buried, he rose again alone. For there is none better than him, none above him, none beside him. Let us pray. In this moment, Lord, we bring our prayers and our concerns for others. The world seems so full of problems way beyond our imagining and understanding. Emergencies seem to be almost daily, and we move from one to another so quickly. But these emergencies are still there, and people are still impacted and in need. Our prayers we bring knowing that even if we fail to listen to you, you always listen to us. You listen to our words, our silences, our yearnings and our longing. For those in crisis this day, we pray that someone will listen to them. For those in poverty and destitution, we pray that someone will give them a gift. For those in pain and anguish, we pray that someone will offer relief. For those who are hungry, we pray that someone will feed them. For those who are thirsty, we pray that they may be given clean water. For those in grief, we pray that someone will simply be with them. For those who are near the end of life, we pray that someone will hold their hand. For those who are lonely, we pray that they may be befriended. For those who are frightened, we pray they may be soothed and calm. Lord, there are so many needs of so many people in so many places. We remember now those seeking to rule our country. May they do so with justice, honesty and compassion, seeking an agenda for all and not just for themselves. May those who wish to lead listen to the needs and voices around them. We remember those in Ukraine facing uncertain futures with the war seemed to be an ongoing crisis they are living through and for those who have left family and friends behind and moved to neighbouring countries, including our own, may we, with others, listen to their stories and their anguish. For the people of Sri Lanka, where seemingly the cost of living is daily forcing thousands into poverty way beyond our understanding. For the people of Afghanistan, whose freedoms and life choices are being daily eroded by a government who fails to listen to the voices of the world. For those who fear the impacts of climate change, who are challenged by excessive heat and flood. We remember those in our own country who are hungry this day. 
may they find the kindness and support of neighbours and strangers, of food banks and more, to feed not just their bodies but their minds and their souls. For refugees risking all they have left, life and limb, to escape to a country which is safer, more secure and more welcoming. For those seeking purpose and point in life, may someone listen to them and bring them to you. Remember those in dark places. May they see light and hear words of comfort and welcome and hospitality. Lord, these are our prayers this day. We offer them and ourselves, knowing you hear our every word. Lord, hear us and bless those for whom we pray. Amen.
our last song is about being still and is sung by Tim McGraw. But first a final prayer. Lord, send us out into the world, alert to whatever nudges us to hear you calling, or whatever points us in your way. Make us bold to resist those who would keep us in the comfortable, well-trodden paths, so that, like Mary, we can break free from time to time to sit at your feet. Amen. Here's a place I like to go Where I can hear the cotton grow Midnight train whistles blow a dozen miles down the road all I really have to do is just be still Here's the place I love to be Mama, Daddy, my sister and me First time I ever saw the beach Back to 1983 All I really have to do is just be still Thank God I can 